So welcome to Jewish mysticism and the spiritual life. We're using the text, Jewish mysticism and the spiritual life, classical texts, contemporary reflections, edited by Lawrence Fine and Eitan Fishbane and Orr Rose, um, put out by Jewish Lights Publishing. This week we're going to be looking uh, at a text uh, that begins on page 152 of your book if you're wanting to find out where we're starting and if you haven't had a chance to read it before you came tonight. We are in these texts looking at the Hasidic master's interpretation of mysticism and mystical texts. So we are not looking usually at the source material um, from Kabbalah, from the different works of Kabbalah, from Jewish mysticism. Rather, we're looking at the Hasidic interpretation of those texts. Because Hasidism really sought to take those esoteric, kind of um, very theoretical, mystical texts and make them livable, to make them doable in everyday life. So what we've talked about before is that, and some of those Hasidic texts now are beyond us. They, they were there to explicate the Kabbalistic texts that were beyond most people, right? And bringing it into everyday language and everyday parlance and everyday practice. And now a lot of those Hasidic texts are past where a lot of our learning is. And so we have these wonderful uh, folks in this collection uh, who write and unpack for us the Hasidic texts that are unpacking the mystical texts. Very clear, yes? Who are unpacking the Torah. <laughs> who are unpacking the Torah. Exactly, right? So very clear. Clear as mud. So we're going to be looking today at uh, Michael Fishbane. He's the scholar that, has look, that is looking at um, Rabbi Avraham Yeshua Heschel, the Epter Rebbe, and the Epter Rebbe's text, the uh, Ohev Yisrael. So that is where we're getting our, our Hasidic text from. And the Hasidic texts is going to quote, of course, uh, teachings from Kabbalah and from Talmud, right? The, Kabbal- the Kabbalistic texts always, they always pull from Talmud and Midrash and all of these places that make connections between Torah texts, between verses of Torah, between concepts, uh, between pieces of liturgy. And we're going to be dealing with a piece of liturgy today. Actually, we're going to be dealing with the Shema. So... At least that will be familiar to most of us. Was uh, is this Heschel related to AJ Rabbi AJ Heschel? I'm not sure how? Okay. But predates AJ. Yes, it's not AJ Heschel. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Um, I think the after Rabbi died in eighteen. Twenty-five. Yeah. Thank you. Twenty-five. All right, so we are going to look uh, at this text from the Ohev Yisrael, which is on page 152. It's a long one. They're usually not quite this long. So it's it's a lot um, that we're going to be unpacking. Um, because people have found it helpful, uh, I have made, as usual, for you a copy of my notes. So how I unpack graphically, some of us are our visual learners, um, how I graphically unpack this text. So I've made copies of this for you. So as we walk through it, know that um, that I'll be giving you this uh, to look at as well. All right, so let's, let's look at the... Always we're going to get a Torah text. Everything is based in Torah, right? Torah is the love letter 
that the mystics read over and over and over again for every single possible nuance. When we read a love later, uh, love later, um, <laughs> Freudian slip, much later. Um, so when we read a love letter, it says, dearest Amy. Why dearest? Why not dear? Dearest. What could she have meant by that? Right? So you know, we, we look at everything, the spelling. We look at the where does the, the comma go? Is it an exclamation point or a period? Right? It, these things make a difference when you're truly reading something for every possible drop that you could get out of the intention um, of the text. That's how the rabbis read Torah. And so everything they're ever going to really be talking about, they're going to base in Torah so sometimes they'll read whatever they want to back into Torah, but a lot of times they look at Torah texts and they start um, through the generations to freely associate and to make all of these wonderful connections. And it's a huge counterintuitive jump that they make from Numbers 35-7 to the Shema. But they're going to do it. Watch them. They're going to do it. All right, so somebody read uh, the beginning of this text, please. The towns that you shall assign. The towns that you shall assign to the Levites shall comprise the six cities of, re- of refuge designated for a manslayer to flee to, plus 42 additional towns, Numbers 35-7. In order to arouse the heart to truly comprehend the import of this passage, one should first indicate that this commandment, mitzvah, is valid for all times. Since the Torah is eternal, hence it is applicable even at this time as a rectification to kum for anyone who slays make a person nefesh unintentionally. Numbers thirty-five fifteen. That is to say, anyone who unintentionally commits sins and transgressions and destroys their soul nasho may perform this tikkun by accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven in total love and by reciting to God with exceeding great devotion, Mesarut uh, Nefesh, truly and with all their heart, to God be praised, the six words of the proclamation, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. For the six words of this recitation correspond to the six cities of refuge. Of course they do. And similarly, the scriptural reference to the 42 additional towns corresponds to the sum of the words in the opening paragraph of the Shema recitation. This being the section beginning with, and you shall love the Lord your God. For it too is comprised of 42 words. Of course it is. Hence, by the acceptance of the love of God and his Torah with a complete heart and soul, nefesh, viz, uh, the second unit, and by a true and wholehearted devotion to accept the yoke of the kingdom of heaven, with the love of God and with all one's heart, uh, that is to say the first unit, one will have atoned for having smitten, Makay, their soul nephage unintentionally. Are we clear? <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. Good. Good. All right. So numbers, in the book of Numbers, Bamidbar, the book we're in right now, chapter 35, verse 7, provides us with six cities of refuge. Remind us what these were? Well, if you killed someone accidentally, you could go there and be safe. If you killed someone, destroyed, smote someone, ax- 
accidentally, it can't be premeditated, it's manslaughter, it's accidental, you can go to one of these six cities of refuge and why would you go there? Why do you need to go there? Otherwise the family will kill you. Because otherwise the clan of the person you manslaughtered can come after you. Your life is forfeit. You didn't mean to do it. But it's blood guilt. Your life is forfeit and their clan has a right to avenge the death, the blood of their kinsperson. And so your life becomes forfeit to that clan unless you get to one of these six cities. And if you do, you can live there safely and your life is no longer, I mean, your life is still forfeit if you leave. But inside that city, you are safe until when? Jubilee. Death of the high priest. Uh, definitely. Are you then not safe? Uh, you're then safe to go. Oh. Everyone's safe to go then. All right. So, six cities of refuge because you did a maque. This business, right? Um, in English. Okay, these markers are terrible. Slay or actually, you know, like, you know, smite, hit, right? Kind of maqued because you have to go to one of these six days of refuge because you maqued a nefesh. What's a nefesh? Person. A person, a self, right? Nefesh is self and becomes to mean a person. In later parlance, in later spiritual parlance, what does nefesh mean? Soul, correct. So it starts it starts as soul, but it means what we mean in English when we say ten souls went down mm. right to the local tavern. Right? So meaning soul in English even has meant person. But souls don't go to the local tavern, they go down with the ship. <laughs> they go they go down yeah. with the ship. Ten souls went down with the ship. So it means self. Or person, and just like in English, starts to split away from meaning the entirety of the self and comes to mean, what do we mean when we say soul in English? Now. The non-physical part. The the spiritual aspect. The spirit. The non-material. The non-physical part. That's exactly what happens in Hebrew. The same development happens in Hebrew. Nefesh in the Bible means person, mm-hmm. self, and you should love God with all of your nefesh. Bechol nafshecha, with all of your nefesh, meaning your whole self. And later comes to mean soul. So what do the rabbis do? How did the rabbis jump? It's beautiful. How do they jump? Torah's true for all time. God forbid you should think this numbers 35-7 is about when we were in Israel and you manslaughtered somebody. Ugh. Yes, once upon a time, that's what it meant. But look at the words of Fishbane on 154. This remarkable teaching into the mystery of the Torah, Right? Go down one, two, three, like four sentences. The end of that, the beginning of the sentence, four lines down. It is thus simultaneously both a formative revelation 
of historical instruction, meaning there once upon a time were cities of refuge and people actually went there and they really were not safe unless they went there. Yes, that's the historical instruction and an ever-present teaching for the transformation of those who seek its deeper wisdom. This is the truth of Torah for Jewish tradition, right? Yes, there's a historical component to the cities of refuge, but God forbid you should think that's it. The rabbis understand that it is an ever-present teaching for the transformation of those who seek its deeper wisdom. To achieve this, one must first choose to stand in the circle of Sinai, and then its ancient words may speak anew. Indeed, for the Torah to be present to the heart, the receiver must first be present to it. Such is the mystery of spiritual presence. So we might want to call this a game and a stretch and really, 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 City's Refuge Schmott, really, but... But truly, for our tradition, this is the mystery of spiritual presence. As we can look at this text and have an entry into another part of Jewish living and Jewish life and Jewish spiritual practice. And what is that? If we take this and we just make a spiritual teaching of it, if you should unintentionally smite your soul... There are indeed six places to go for refuge. And what what are they? Shema, Yisrael. That's right. Shema, Yisrael. Adonai, Eloheinu. Adonai, Echad. There are your six places of refuge. And every single one of us is going to smite our soul unintentionally. This is how it is. This is life. This is being human. This is what it means to be both a spiritual being and a human. That's just what it is. So, not to worry, folk of Israel. We are told in Torah, it's okay. It's okay. There's a way to do tikkun. There's a way to repair it. There's a way to be safe. It's going to be okay. So, we get these six cities of refuge, but those aren't the only ones, right? What else are we, what did we just get told? What did Bert just read? 42 towns. There are 42 additional towns that we find in Torah. Okay, well, of course. Because the second paragraph of the Shema has how many words? 42. Of course. The Vihafta. Exactly. So a further strengthening of the connection between the promise that there will be refuge from the smiting of the soul and its relationship to the liturgy of the Shema. Another connection. Can't be an accident. Right? Exactly. All right. So, now, it gets a little complicated. <laughs> oh, I suppose it's easy. <laughs> so I'm going to give you my notes so that you don't have to stretch. Would you just pass those backwards behind you? So you don't have to stretch to hold what I'm saying and what's coming next. You have it in front of you. 
which I always find helpful. In case you were wondering where it came from, Numbers 35.15 says, For the children of Israel and for the stranger and for the settler among them will these six cities be for refuge. So we have, um, oh, sorry. So that was the one we read here. Then 35.17 says, right? You will give them these six cities of refuge, blah, 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 blah. And beside them, you will give 40 and two cities. Just so you see where it comes from. There it is. Our 42 other cities from the book of Numbers, two verses later, the same amount as in the words of the Vahakta. So what does that give us? Go to my notes where it says formula. Here's our formula. Shema, which has to be said, according to the rabbis, with wholehearted devotion to God. And Vahavta, the acceptance of the love of God with our complete heart and soul, equals atonement, right? The tikkun, the repair of having smitten our souls unintentionally. How, tell, tell me, for, for people who may not know it by heart, tell me how the second paragraph of the Shema goes in yeah. English. Oh, in English. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, and with all your might. This day, you shall take them to heart. So you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, with your whole self, with all of your maodness, with all of your muchness. And these words. I command that they be on your heart. Right? So the, this is the second paragraph of the Shema. There's a distinction for the rabbis between the six cities and the 42 cities. Right? We get six big ones. Six are prominent. And then these 42 others. And that is an important differentiation. That's an important distinction for them. These are Deuteronomy. Hmm? These are from Deuteronomy. The yes. words that we just said? Yes. yes. Deuteronomy. Correct. Which was probably the Shema's in Deuteronomy. Way after this was written. Of course. Ein mukdamu mochar Torah. Bert, you know that. No early and late in the Torah. All right. So going back to what Bert read. Uh, hence, go to where it says hence in the bottom of page 152. Hence. Last two lines of 152. Hence, by the acceptance of the love of God and God's Torah with a complete heart and soul, right, the words of the Vehavta, and by a true and wholehearted devotion to accept the yoke of the kingdom of heaven with a love of God with all one's hearts, meaning the Shema, one will have atoned for having smitten their soul unintentionally. Okay, so we're we're clear now on that. We're going to unpack a little bit about what is the difference, yes, between the Shema and the Vehavta. All right, so Bert, read again, please, more over the Gemara. More over the Gemara in the Tractate of Makot, 
stripes. Okay, why, why are we worried about my coat? Why are we worried about the tractate on my coat? Why would we go there? Why would we go to my coat? Oh. My cat. Duh. <laughs> We're talking about my coat. We're talking about smitings. Well, if we're going to talk about smitings, we better go look up our book on smitings, which is Makot, right? And so we're going to look at the Gemara in the tractate on these, you know, what they're what they're calling stripes, meaning meaning lashes, meaning punishment. Okay, go on. Uh, <clears throat> adduces, okay, the tractate adduces the following teaching on the terminology. Used in Numbers 35.7. Abbe said, the original six cities of refuge afford asylum both with and without cognizance uh, of the refuge of the refugee. That is his awareness of finding safety there. So Abaye says that the six cities of refuge that we talk about first, it doesn't matter if you know that Atlanta is a city of refuge or not. If you live in Atlanta, you are safe. Okay, go on. Whereas the additional 42 cities afford asylum only with cognizance, but not without such awareness. So the other ones, you have to know you're in a city of refuge or it doesn't work. Okay? How do the rest of the people know? That I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> now these just noted conditions may be interpreted in the same spiritual way as above, namely with respect to the recitation of the Shema prayer. Thus, the first six words of the Shema, whereby a person devotes their nefesh, spirit, ruach, and neshama, supernal soul to God in perfect truth, affords spiritual asylum. That is tikkun for the wounded soul. All right, so did you see that leap? Did you see that little jump we did there? So the... First six cities, and we know the first six cities correspond to what? The six words. The words of the six words of the Shema. For those six cities, you have, you, it doesn't matter whether or not you know and have the intention of being in a city of refuge. So what do we learn from this? The first six words of the Shema work automatically. Magical. With or without intention. With or without your intention, the words of the Shema work. They have their own power of tikkun. I'm going to not use the word magic on purpose because it was seen as something else by the rabbis always. And not good. And not good, <laughs> right. And not about God. Um, there seems to be a power to the words of the Shema that can affect refuge, tikkun, repair, to the damaged soul automatically. Okay, And because you have to know the other 42 cities, you have to be cognizant of the fact that they are cities of refuge. Well, that means that you have to say the 42 words of the second paragraph of the Shema with intention. Of course. That's very clear. Yes? With knowledge of the fact. Not intention of the act that you committed. Right. But with knowledge of the fact that this city is where 
Correct. That's exactly right, George. Alien. Thank you for the yes. Thank you for the clarification. So that you know, yes, you, you're aware of the fact that that city of refuge is functioning for you as as refuge. Okay, Bert, go on. Uh, I don't know where you are. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, okay. The um, thus the first six words of the Shema, whereby a person devotes their nefesh spirit. Ruach and Nishama, supernal soul to God and perfect truth, afford spiritual asylum, tikkun for the wounded soul. Whether this recitation is truly performed with cognizance and comprehension, or whether the act of devotion is so intense that the person loses complete cognizance in ecstasy. Okay, so for them, it's not just intention and focus. It also means what it counts and it works even if one becomes completely ecstatic and has the experience of not thinking. Has anyone ever had that experience? Most of my life. Most of your life. I don't believe it, George, but okay. Um, so, right, so there are times we have experiences of spiritual, such spiritual power that there is a union between us and the universe. All division falls away. And so I'm not, there's no I to be aware that I'm saying these words because there is no I. There's only the I. Capital, well, I guess all I's are capital. Um, right? There's only the self, capital S, of the universe of which I am a part. Yes? This is one of the interpretations of the verse when Yaakov, when Jacob wakes up and he says... I was in this, God was in this place, but I, I did not know. And the rabbis are like, Department of Redundancy Department, I, I did not know. Well, who else wouldn't? I'm like, you know, like, why, and why is I said twice? Right? And one of the mystical interpretations of that line of Torah is, Yaakov says, God was in this place, and I, that I, did not know it. Because there was no I. That make sense? Yeah. There was just a knowing that was about being a part of, and all division falls away. What is it called uh, in Latin? Union, mystica. What's it called? Mystical union, mystical oneness, and it's often a goal of spiritual practice to experience that oneness. So the rabbis are saying it's okay if you have an experience of ecstasy. And all division and boundaries fall away and you are completely absorbed in the one capital O. That's okay. The words of the Shema still work. But, beauty. Bert? This next sentence, you're really going to have to unpack this one. Okay. Granted the latter matter, that is the recitation of the first verse. Of Shema, right. Okay would seem to be more important and valuable than the former involving recitation of the first paragraph. You would think you're supposed to focus more on the Uh six words of the Shema than the words of the paragraph, you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, right? You, You would think the Shema is so important that it would require more focus by the tradition saying you have to instead of the second paragraph. What's up with that? Okay, go. Okay, as the traditional halachic decisors, or poskim, have commented in several places. And from the gist of their remarks, one may conclude whether or not the latter is more common than the former. <laughs> These are the longest sentences I know, I've ever I know. Read. 
They were great writers. I'm that these six words of the Shema proclamation afford spiritual asylum both with and without full mental cognizance. Whereas the 42 words of the following paragraph, starting with, and you shall love, which enjoins the total loving acceptance of the love of God and his holy Torah and commandments, actually require a great knowing, cognizance, and understanding. Okay, so we, we are clear on that, yes? yes. We got That's clear on that. That's what you were saying. Right. That's Good. Okay. Uh, and more specifically, even were one to inquire, acquire a comprehension of the spiritual intellects during this recitation, but achieve this while in a state of ecstatic incognizance, these words of recitation would not afford uh, any spiritual asylum for one's soul. That's talking now about the via hafta. Yes, talking about the via hafta. Right. So you can't go off in ecstasy. No, you cannot. Okay. You must return. Okay. Um, now this seems to be a separate paragraph to me. What's coming? The next. Okay. One? May God. This, isn't this a, a prayer? May God, the praised, grant us the merit of divine worship and love, performed in truth and perfection and in complete cognizance. Let this be God's will. Amen. Understand well the full import of this instruction. Okay. Okay, so tell me what what do you think is more complicated about and you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart with all uh, Well there's more about teaching it to your kids and putting it on the doorposts and all the rest of that stuff. Um, you know, it's it's seven times longer. <laughs> <laughs> the rabbis, for sure. So, aren't they then saying that, you know, all right, so this one you have to think about, the other one you don't. So, I would say, yes, it's longer. Yes, there's more going on in the second paragraph of the Shema. It seems a lot more straightforward to me, the second paragraph, than trying to unpack what the heck yud hey vav hey our God, that yud hey vav hey is echad. I, it, it seems to me that the Shema Yisrael is a cosmic statement about the nature of everything. Whereas Vihafta is what is our reaction, you know, therefore what do we have to do? And so I agree in the complexity, because it's, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta do that, I gotta do that. That follows this perception of all being one. I thought it was, I didn't pick up the seven times six. It's 42. Is that what you said? Yeah, he said, he said it's seven times longer. Uh, exactly. Seven times six is 42. I did not realize it was seven exactly is seven a times not longer. insignificant number. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for us. In neuroplasticity in the brain, it's very, if you concentrate on something, if you bring intention and focus to something, then you, like if you've had a stroke, and that you're trying to rehabilitate and learn to use your arm again. If you bring intention and concentration to the reaching for the microphone, it lays down new neural pathways. I don't know if that's of any use, but the, I, my thinking was if you have to pay attention to the 42 words, you have, in order to get it, you have to, to become it, you have to focus on it. And why would that be necessary with the 42 words 
as opposed to the six. I think you're onto something. I want to push you. It's our job. It's not a statement of the big picture. It's what we have to do. So we have to remember it and learn how to do it and focus. And what we have to do takes discipline. And we can't space out. And what I hear you saying is laying down new neural pathways means creating a support for discipline. Right? It creates the discipline that allows one the strength to refrain or the strength to act. And I think Vehavta itself is a very complicated idea in that what does it mean to love Adonai with all of one's nefesh, right, self, one's me'od, one's muchness, and and all of one's heart, right? What does that what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that call from us? And the discipline of intentionality around that, I think, is part of the underlying system of rabbinic Judaism in general. A lot of what we eat and don't eat in rabbinic Judaism is not you can't eat it because it's bad. You can't eat it because it's off limits to y'all. <laughs> right? Because y'all are... You belong to yud Vavhei and are in relationship to that God. And so y'all need to exercise some discipline around what you eat and what you don't eat. And a lot of those things are what the neighbors were eating, by the way. In order to strengthen the neural pathways of identification with the Jewish people. And never has that been more critical, I don't believe, or I do believe, um, than now. America 2015 for us, right? It is in a time when we are being invited into citizenship, full belonging to the society of the United States of America as full and equal citizens, never before has it been so important for us to figure out then what does it mean that I belong to the Jewish people and that I belong right in this crazy kind of relationship to yud vav that has its special do's and don'ts just because I'm Jewish. What is the value of that anymore? Is there a value? This place is not terribly full on a given night. We have a thousand families. That's a great thing. I'm really happy about that. And, right, what are Jews saying about the place, right? Of the, And so the laying down of those pathways that are about discipline and identification and the repetition, right, of intentionality around that that builds a certain kind of ease and naturalness of expression. We'll call it Jewish expression. That yours was about an arm reaching, but it, but let's call the arm reaching Jewish living. That's exactly what the rabbis are concerned about, always. So you know. Um... Mm-hmm. Are you, you have free will to do what you want, when you want, 
so wait, but let's be clear what, may this be God's will modifies. Okay. May God, may God be praised, grant us the merit of divine worship in love, performed in truth, in perfection, and in complete cognizance. May that be God's will. God's will has to mean something. God's will has to mean something. So for the after Rebbe, it did. Does that language speak to us? I don't know. Only if you honor God. Only if you honor God. Right. Right. So, I don't, you know, may it be God's will. I don't know. You know, especially in stuff like this where it's like, you know, I think, I think may I merit is closer to me to what I can have can hear its own mean in a, in a deep and important way to me. But the Shema part first acknowledges, I don't know, I don't know, I you got to start there. And that's why if you can get there, then you so, so why is that the starting place, do you think? Why does it have to start there? Because otherwise you can't be all part of one. Ah. So for me to truly live into God's oneness, I first have to what? Acknowledge that God is the source of all oneness. Acknowledge that God is the source of all. Everything. Is everything. Right. Okay? Um, so what... What about God's oneness has to, why does that have to proceed and you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might? Why, why can't I love Astarte and Ishtar and, well, they're probably the same, but, um, you know, why, why can't I love different gods with all my heart and soul? And, and why does, why does this Echad business have to pre- proceed Speaking as a Jew. So, this is one of the places, this is to my point of what I was saying to you, Tom, is this is where, this is where Shema gets complicated. Right? Cause it says, Shema Yisrael, listen up, Jew. Listen, Jew. Yud Hey Vav Hey Eloheinu. Some some people say the real job is to put the verb is. Because there is no is in Hebrew. Like when you're talking in Hebrew, there isn't an is. So is is implied in lots of places and in most sentences in Hebrew, right? Hakisei kahol, the chair blue. Well, in English, how would you say that? The chair is blue. You don't say that in Hebrew. The chair blue. Is is implied. You have to stick it in. So some people say, well, that that's where an is is supposed to go. Listen up, Jew. yud hey vav hey is our God. Yeah, but wait, wait a minute now. There was a, taught, a class taught here some years ago by a man named Al Melman. Uh-huh. Of, of what 
those middle words of the Shema mean, Adonai Eloheinu. And they were historical statements of unification. Because Yudhe was his desert god, mm -hmm. right? But every mountain at the top of it had its own god mm -hmm. that was Ale. Mm -hmm. Well, not exactly, but okay. You're, you're in the neighborhood. This is a statement of the same thing. No. That they're all one. No. Yudhe is the same as Ale. No. That's, that's, I'm going to say no, and you can, you can bring him in here and we can have a discussion for three hours, but no, it's way more complicated than that. Yes, El is why Elohenu, Elohim, has El at the beginning. Because El was the chief god of the Canaanites was the head of the Canaanite pantheon. If you want your converted Canaanites that are converted to Yahwism, if you want them to stick with your religion, you better put L in there. So you want the pagans to stay with your church, you better give them a tree in December in their house, right? And a big event tied to that. So, um, so okay, wait, wait, I just went off in all kinds of different directions. But... Um, but so, yeah, so El is definitely connected to that. Definitely the mountain God, the desert God. Definitely all of that is here. But the statement that they're all one is not the only thing going on here. That's, that's okay. Who cares? Mm -hmm. They're all one, whatever. Mm -hmm. They're all five. Who cares? I don't know. Maybe some people thought that was a huge radical thing. And that's probably true in some ways. In other ways, what's radical is to say... Because early monotheism did not say there's only one God. Early monotheism said God, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of yud heh battled on a mountain and yud heh won. <laughs> it doesn't say there is no Baal. Early monotheism was not pure monotheism. Let us be clear. There were other gods that the Israelites acknowledged. Pure monotheism is late. So what does this mean if there isn't only one God? In a way, it's a hugely radical statement to say, yud heh vav -Hey is Eloheinu, is our God. Jesus is their God. That's fine. But you don't get Christmas. <laughs> yes? That you Israelites don't need to worry about Astarte and Ishtar and Baal. Don't worry about it. That's not part of our conversation. All y'all need to know, you Jews, is that yud heh vav this concept of is, was, will be, all of it being somehow a unity, that is your expression. That is your God. You don't get any of the others. And you get matzah with it. And you get matzah with it. Right? We'll throw in matzah for good measure. So... That is one interpretation of the Shema, is that an is goes in here. But other people want to say, no, uh is doesn't go there. Listen up, Jew. yud heh vav -Hey, our God. That yud heh vav -Hey, Echad. Now, what if I tell you, don't read Echad as one like the number one? How else could you take that term echad complete. and understand this? Complete. Complete. What else? All encompassing. All. Let's just stop at all. Right? 
science fiction singularity. So that is not so off at all, I don't think, from what it's about. It's a singularity. Get it, you people, Israel. yud hey vav this business is a singularity. It is unique. Capital U. And, and that is important for early Israel to understand. I don't think it's just about numbers. I really don't. I think it's truly about something else. That it's about one being all. One being completeness, existence, capital E. All be, you know, one being a singular, the singularity, meaning of the universe unfolding. That is what we mean when we say yud heh vav heh. For y'all, Israelites, we don't care what anybody else thinks or believes. That's fine. They can have whatever they have. That's grand and good for them. What y'all need to worry about is this business. I was once in a class where the teacher had us repeat the Shema, putting an emphasis on a different word each time. Yes. And it takes on a complete, whether you're saying Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, or whether you're saying Shema Yisrael, or Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, <laughs> yes. I said it, it takes on a completely different sense. The things one can only really do on retreat. <laughs> We're going to take the next 30 minutes, right, and say the Shema all these different times, focusing on a different word, because mm-hmm. it truly does what, you know, when you place the emphasis mm-hmm. on a different syllable, right. it changes, right, the meaning. It changes completely. Um, and where you place the comma and the is's mm-hmm. makes a huge difference, right? So let's eat, comma, grandma, versus <laughs> let's eat grandma, let's eat grandma <laughs> are two very different statements, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Is part of it contractual? If the, Oh, let me get this all mixed up. But you're for, if you're try, talking to a tribe who has, there are many gods out there. Oh, I don't know. Uh, are go you ahead. Forsaking other gods for this one god. Yes. Is this one god the singularity? Are they are the other gods contained within? I mean, I know this no. sounds silly, but what happens to all those other gods? So, are they do, do they count? Are they in there? Are they, these or to us? these are our concerns now. Is you know. What were their concerns then? I don't know. The prophets were mostly concerned with keeping them from worshiping Baal and Astarte, or they wouldn't be yelling about it all the time. Meaning, we never did this. We never did this. Let's be very clear. They have found uh, idols in every single strata of ancient Israelite society. Every single strata. Including today. Including today, right? There's never been a time when we weren't busy trying to figure out who's the best (laughs) God for me to like deal with right now, right? So, you you know, weren't there gods for different things? Sure. You know, sure for 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 for, uh, fertility and things like that. We're saying this God is one. It's for. All those things. Sure. So that all yeah, of that all is all of that is under the power of Yudhe Vavhe. Hundred percent. There's a sense of interconnectedness in that idea that you don't have with the idea of separate gods. Right. That that fertility is connected to agriculture, is connected to your body, 
to treating your neighbor right. Well, ah, and that's the big jump is that all of it is related for us and interconnected with ethical and moral behavior. That's the big leap for me. That's the big jump that this brand of monotheism, whether it was pure or not, you know, because early it wasn't pure monotheism, later it was, but doesn't matter. The big jump is yud hey vav hey cares how you talk to your neighbor. And you're not going to get zapped with lightning because Zeus is having a fight with Hera. Right? There's not a whimsical God who, you know, is like goofing around and you get caught in the crossfire. That is not how this God works. That is the huge innovation of this for me is because of this, you Israelites are called into ethical and moral behavior that this God demands. Because this is a moral God. Yes? Doesn't the singularity count? Let's take the singularity a step further. Okay. Does the singularity erase the effort? Within effort is the ones and ones and ones. From a singularity comes all ones. Is that what you're trying to say? Yes, I think. Yes. (laughs) If I understand what you're saying. Yes. All right, so go, go to your note sheet. And I gave you the quote from whence this business comes about the first words. It comes from the Talmud, Brachot 13b. Our rabbis taught, Hero Israel, yud our God, yud is one. Up to this point, concentration is required. So says Rabbi Meir. And Rava says, the halacha is stated by Rabbi Meir. Meaning they agreed with Rabbi Meir that this indeed is the halacha. This is the law. That you must... Right? Have concentration. All right. When a person says these words with complete devotion, I'm giving you the formula that we saw here in our text. When someone says these words with complete devotion of their nefesh, spirit, and their nefesh, ruach, and neshama, three different levels of the human soul, according to Kabbalah, in perfect truth, Spiritual asylum is granted the wounded soul. Asylum, tikkun, repair is granted the, the soul that has gotten the makkah, right? The, the hit. All right. So flip it over. And now we're going to go to Fishbane. You thought we were done? Totally understand. All right. So go to page one fifty five. Go to the bottom paragraph on one fifty five. Find the word that says following a traditional interpretation. Right? Seventh line from the bottom. Yes. Thank you. Seven lines from the bottom. Following a traditional interpretation, the opening six words of the Shema recitation are said to mark or assert one's commitment to the kingdom of heaven. That's the language we saw in the after Rebbe's text in the Ohev Yisrael. We saw that, yes? The accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. So remind me what Fishbane says is accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven? 
focused in directional prayer, the Shema. Recitation of this. Right. Of these first six words. Exactly right. Okay. With or without cognizance. Because remember, it's listen up, Israelite. You're saying it to yourself. Or the person sitting next to you. Right? Here, oh Israel, we're saying, it's not a prayer to God. It's, it's for us to hear. So it's us hearing ourselves assert our commitment to the kingdom of heaven. That is, to the wholehearted devotion of one's entire soul to God's dominion over all existence. Hence, the soul begins its healing by being called to attend, hear the truth of divine unity. And for them to be effective, the reciters must hear these words as directed to their soul, even as they are expressed from within one's self. So, an amazing part of our capacity to heal ourselves. Even though we initiate it, there are certain things that when we initiate them and we say them and we hear ourselves say them, it reinforces something that then creates a healing that doesn't happen without that. Sometimes for me, it's Amy. Pay very careful attention to what you say next. Right? Sometimes it's out loud. Sometimes it's in my head. But right, it's that it's that sense of we do have the capacity and the ability to speak things to ourselves that affect how we are in the world. And we have the ability to hear. And we have the ability to hear. Thus, a person can put themselves in the position of receiving by first putting their entire being in the position of hearing, meaning hearing anew. So why use the word receiving? Why is Fishbane using the word receiving, do you think? Receiving, Kabbalah, truth, these texts, Torah. We receive Torah anew, Right? Because every day is Sinai. When we, because every day the voice is calling from Sinai. Hayom, atemid savim kuchem hayom lifnei Adonai loechem. Y'all stand, all y'all, before God today. The rabbis translate it today, meaning it didn't happen a long time ago. God forbid it happens every day. So our job is to put ourselves in the position of hearing. Shema. Yisrael, there's, it's not an accident that this whole powerful, amazing healing business begins with Shema. Listen, hear, meaning anew. Drop down to the end of that paragraph. The soul becomes one through a devoted enunciation of God's Oneness, and this is the first level of repair. So Fishbane is going back to the after Rebbe's text, right, and un- unpacking it further for us. There's several levels of repair. The first one is hearing 
And then having the soul knit together through a devoted enunciation of God's togetherness. Yeah. It's interesting one is saying it and hearing it simultaneously. It's 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 a simultaneous experience. But One's not hearing somebody else. It's not saying listen to it coming from the sky. Like you said, you're talking to yourself. But at this level at this level of repair, it's the soul being repaired within itself. Is that and why reunited? Reunited, and it <laughs> feels so good. Right? Is that why this is always said aloud? For the rabbis? In our, in our Shema? Has to be allowed. Has to be allowed. Allowed. A-L-O-U-D. Yeah. Right? It has to be. Why? Because <laughs> how can I hear if I don't say it out loud? So for the rabbis, you don't have to say it loudly. But you have to say every word of the davening so that you can hear it. This is where speed mumble davening comes from, right? So you see people, right? They're saying the words. They have to say every word and they have to say it so that they can hear it. Someone across the room doesn't have to hear it, but I have to hear myself say it or you're not Yotze. You have not fulfilled the obligation. So you can't just think it. No. Shema. You have to hear it. The Orthodox do that with everything. Yes. Yeah. All service. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. What did he say? That that Orthodox Jews that that's where it comes from. The practice for Orthodox Jews that they say every single word of the liturgy, the whole morning service, the whole afternoon service, the whole evening Mm -hmm. service. Every word has to be said out loud. But not loudly. Correct. Correct. It's silent, maybe for other people, right? right? But not to me, because I have to hear my own voice say the words. I'm just thinking, though, to hear or to listen, you have to be quiet. So herein lies the paradox, right? So I have to shut up in order to hear at the same time that I'm talking to myself, so I can hear myself, yeah. <laughs> right? So. so that's why you had to be literate, because you had to read the whole damn thing. Yeah, yeah, right. So if I have to say every word, I, I either have to memorize it, mm-hmm. or, I or I better read it. And so actually the rabbis say that you should never pray without the prayer book in front of you. Now that we have them, mm-hmm. and everyone has access to one, they say you should never pray without it in front of you, right? That... If you've got the words, read the words and say them out loud. Because you could miss one if you're doing it from memory. And also it's arrogant. I don't need the book. Right? There's a certain kind of arrogance of knowledge and practice that I don't need to use the book. I know it by heart. There's another practical thing. If If you're in a room and everybody is, like you say, speed mumbling, whatever, it if if you don't talk the words yourself, you can't follow anything. Because <laughs> it's hear, all just a jumble. Right, right, you just hear a... a, a right. Um, and... Yes, exactly. And to that point, it's also why the rabbis, to protect people who couldn't afford prayer books, mm-hmm. this is how the reader's repetition right. of the whole entire Amidah mm-hmm. 
came about. The reader, the Chazan, would read from a book, because the Chazan could afford a book, because presumably it belonged to the shul. Um, and that way, anybody in the congregation who couldn't afford a prayer book, once upon a time, they were extraordinarily expensive, yes, then when the reader reads the whole paragraph and gets to the chatima, gets to the seal, which is the blessing at the end of the paragraph, if you say amen, you get full credit for having said every word. This is still why we have this public recitation of amen. Because Jews needed right to, to be yotze. They needed to fulfill the obligation to prayer, even if they couldn't afford the prayer book to pray. Now, theoretically, if you say the prayer yourself, you don't need to say amen. Correct. Even though we do it all that the time. That is the Department of Redundancy <laughs> Department. Amen. You'll notice I never say amen at the end of hamotzi. I say betea avon. You should eat with a good appetite. Because it's redundant to say amen to my own bracha. Yeah, printing didn't come about till the 1400s. That's right. And it was extraordinarily expensive. The other thing, uh, one of Harold Kushner's books in trying to explain the power of of the power mumbling. <laughs> no, he, he yeah. said it, it becomes a mantra. The mm-hmm. sound of it. It's mm-hmm. not just the words, it's the sound of the whole thing that can transport a person. Right. And Let's go back to her uh, paradox. Hearing and, okay. hearing and being quiet. Okay. I have, no, I have, I have nothing to say. You have nothing to say? No, you just no. want to go back there? Ah, I mean, I think it's just a—it's a really important insight that that at the same time we are saying we need to speak the words and make noise so that we have something to hear. If we're not quiet, if we don't shut up, we can't hear. We can't listen, or turn our phones off. So, which is why for me. It's so important that in Hebrew, I know in modern Hebrew they're different. I know that. So I'm going to always point that out. Yes, I know that. But in this Hebrew, there's no difference between listen and hear. Because how can, how can there be? Attend. Attend. If you don't attend, you can't hear. Right? If you don't listen, you can't. There, so there's two different words was pointless. Right? It was understood. I love that. That, that they meant the same thing because it was an impossibility one without the other. It, there was no such thing. How can you hear if you're not listening? That's only in prayer. That's not when your wife is talking. To you. <laughs> 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 uh, oh, he me. All right. Um, yeah, right? All right, go to 156. And we're going to... Like 13 lines up from the bottom. The sentence that begins for if the opening recitation. It's at the end of the sentence, right? I mean the end of the line. For if the opening recitation of the Shema directs the soul upward toward God and the divine dominion over all being, the recitation of this paragraph, meaning the second paragraph, redirects it earthward to the manifold of the world. Drop down a few more lines. It moves from the syntax of is to the syntax of shall or ought. Yeah? 
The words of the Shema are thus addressed to the mind by a normative assertion. Whereas those of the Ve'ahavta, you shall love, are directed to the heart and hands and feet, to action and tradition, instruction in this world. Last sentence on that paragraph. And to understand and embody the connection between these realms is to be transformed by Torah in body and soul. And this is the second tikkun. It does indeed. Ve'ahavta. That's how it connects. So the vav is the great connector, right? So in the so what's the first level of tikkun? Shema works because it works. <laughs> because you connect with the one. So Shema works because it's <coughs> it's its own powerful thing. <laughs> yes. Are you laughing that it was so articulate there, Bert? That I was. It's it's right. It's it's Torah. It's filled with the divine powers of restoration and and all of those things. The second tikkun, right, is this other one of directing it towards our heart and body, right? Our hands, our feet, our hearts in this world. The things, as we said earlier, that we have to do. The things that we have to be about. Right? There's another level um, of tikkun. I once read an interesting comment uh, from a rabbi on it says, you should put these things on your heart. And the rabbi asked, well, why on your heart? Why not in your heart? And his answer was, your heart's not always open. And if you put it on your heart, sooner or later, it will sink in. So the one I love is you keep placing them on your heart because the world is a frightening and hard place. So the heart stays really closed and tight and defended. And then one day your heart will break. And when your heart breaks, then all those words that you've been putting on top of that finally go in in a much different and much more profound way. But this whole thing is an acknowledgement both of obligation and ought and also of our weakness and our humanness. Which which one is all about that? The vihafta, because it 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 says what we're supposed to do. It doesn't just say do it. So you have to teach it to your children, and therefore you got to understand it yourself. And you have to speak about it in your house, whatever. And you have to have these signs on your hand and in between your eyes. Why? Because it's not that easy to do. No, you're changing the direction. My my understanding of this reading is it's repairing your soul. He's saying teaching the teaching to your family. No, so that, that helps repair your soul. That, that that is part of, part of repairing your own the soul. other level of tikkun is that we have to teach, right? We have to be about certain things um, in this world, is what Fishbane is saying at the bottom of 156. Go to 159. Definitely. 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 So go to the bottom of 159. 
So I love this. The tikkun of the soul is not automatic and is not generalized. It offers a space within prayer for the most profound personal work. For starters, the master calls our hearts to account. We can only begin the healing of the soul through honest awareness of its specific wounds and lack. This awareness is the beginning of tshuva, right? We know tshuva means um, <laughs> return. return. Thank you. Repentance. Return. The task of repair must be undertaken with unswerving dedication. But the final healing belongs to God through the words of Torah and the spiritual realities it communicates. So I think for me, one of the important pieces of this text is going back very, very all the way back to the beginning, which says when you have a make that's unintentional to the nefesh, here's what you have to do about it. What does that assume the normative state of affairs is? You're going to have a make to the nefesh because that's who we are. That's what happens. And I think so often, especially in the West, and especially in America, in a certain economic class, we have this whole thing about if something's wrong, I somehow am too weak to deal with it. I've been weak somehow, right? I'm good. It's all good. I'm fine. I'm good. I can handle it. Because to admit a wounding is to somehow admit failure of being able to keep it all together. Yeah? We have this, we have this patina of perfection. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Nobody's perfect. I, I like that these spiritual teachings start from a place of the only way for any of us to be whole is to find the maqeh. Where are we wounded? Where have we unintentionally harmed ourselves? By listening to somebody who told us we're not good enough? By listening to someone who said you should have? Right? By listening to the media that tell us we're certainly not young enough or thin enough or rich enough or white enough. Pay attention, you Israelites, to the makeh. Find the places of woundedness and then take yourself into a practice of refuge. Entitle yourself to a break, to a refuge, a place that is safe, a place that is about love, a place that is about loving acceptance of the dominion of God, meaning I'm not God. What a relief that is. Because <laughs> generally, what do we do? We go to this crazy place of we got to keep it all together. We got to control it all. Right? And we get really tight and we get really controlling. And I get really bossy. I don't know about y'all, but I get really bossy. Right? Whenever I start to feel like it's coming apart, I get really bossy. Right? Because control helps us feel like we'll be able 
to somehow manage not getting wounded. And we come from a tradition that says that's just not how it works. That's just not how it is. And the glory of it all is that we are given an affirmation of the fact that there is a unity of which you are a blessed and beloved part. And you can go ahead and relax. You're not supposed to be God. God is God. You don't need to worry about it. God's got this. Whatever it means. I'm not saying it's going to be good or pretty, but right, it's not up to me. And there's some way that kind of turning that over and allowing ourselves the, the opportunity for respite is such a beautiful spiritual teaching. The one to turn it over, the one to take refuge, which all of them, right? And so often we just go into like lockdown, right? I think lockjaw. <laughs> and, and it's not, it's not the way of Jewish teaching. Jewish teaching says, welcome to humanity. Welcome to being a spiritual being, having a human experience. There's going to be serious woundings. That's the messy business we're in. It's a new concept for me, but I just love the idea that there are still six cities of refuge. She loves the idea that there are still six cities of refuge. What is Atlanta, apparently? <laughs> what were the old six? I don't know their names. Mm-mm. So I, I think that's what that's what the Ohev Yisrael is ultimately trying to get at. Is that don't think all this stuff is esoteric only. Yes, it is. And yes, contemplating can take us to very lofty, high intellectual, frontal lobe, you know, kind of stuff. And it's a spiritual practice. Exactly. 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 And that we are invited into that practice several times a day as Jews. I don't think it's an accident that the Shema is what got picked. Right? I don't think you can separate the fact that Jews are supposed to say the Shema when you wake up and when you go to bed. And you say it, you know, at least three times during the day while you're davening. Right? When you're saying the morning service and the evening service and you're going to bed and... Right? There's a, there's a whole practice around Shema, including mezuzah, like kissing the mezuzah, right? There's this whole practice of relating to Shema that is very tachlis, right? It's very concrete. It's very present, um, traditionally for Jews, you know, when this stuff is being written. And I don't think it's any accent that it's like we, those are, that is the city of, those are the cities of refuge. Not, not a text you've never heard of. That one. The other thing that's interesting is, of all the Torah, I mean, as wonderful as the Shema is, why those six words? I mean, it's not like 
in the Torah, it says, and now here's the most important six <laughs> words, and these are the ones that you say. It's a statement. It says Shema Yisrael many times right. in the Torah. Right. I mean, not the whole thing, but... Right. This one... Yeah, why not the Ten Commandments? Get it, you know? this one? Yeah. Became the... Right. Clearly became the a winner. mantra, mm-hmm. if you will, for the Jewish people that had... So, you know, it's one of those, which comes first, you know, but clearly it's one of those, those practices that had a profound effect for people. These are the words you're supposed to say as you die. It's a profound practice that then informs a writing that would say, this is where we can find refuge. So what would it be for each one of us? Pick the voice of the beloved for you. Your grandmother, you know, a favorite teacher, who, who, and hear the words, right, that you would call on that, that would do this. That's what these were for Jews who said them, right? Over and over and over and over. Whose parents said it to them first. My, my early remembrances of the Shema are my teachers. And my grandfather. My grandfather would come into my bedroom at night and say, Rachla, it's time, it's time to say the Shema. Let me hear you. Right? And he took such, he felled with such pride that I could say all three paragraphs of the Shema by heart. So, you know, at a, I was little. So, that, that's how it's been. So I, I'm gonna ask as we go into the rest of our week, as we move into Shabbat, try these as refuge and if it's not these is there one is there a phrase is there something someone said to you repeatedly or something they said once that you keep playing over and over and over that is a source of great relief and comfort and an assurance that you are loved and that you belong then see what doing it as a practice feels like Rather than locking down and running, right, from when we feel I'm out of control, it's beyond my control, it's bigger than me, or it really, really, really hurts. Right now, I've had, I had one this week. Really hurts, and I really wish it weren't so. Like, really, really, really wish it weren't so, and it is, and I can't change it. Can we, right, we, we go into... Can we breathe and and come out of lockdown and acknowledge that it's not for me to control? Thank God. Um, on one level, on the other level. <laughs> um, and what is it that that calls us into? Okay, so that's a wound. That's a wounding. And how do we how do we hold that and breathe deeply into? Right. Listen up, you Jewish person. Or you person who just resonates with Jewish teaching, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, it's it's all it's all part of the one, and you're seen and loved and known, and are ultimately okay. And see what that does 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 taking refuge that way do something different than than the ways we generally react and respond to our own our own wound. Hmm.
spiritual healing for pain and suffering. Right. So if we slice our finger open, we reach for something immediately right. to help it. Right. And, and if, we get, if we get another kind of wounding, we often turn away from it. Right. You know, we we want to get as far away from it as we can with shopping and television and you know, substances, whatever, right? We, we want to get far away from that wounding and rather than reach for the antibiotic ointment and the, and the bandages, right, that actually help knit it back together, which is the great wisdom, you know, of, of the rabbis. Thank you for taking your time to be here tonight. Have a great rest of your week. <laughs>